this is Chris Payne from Euclid, Ohio, and you are listening to Barbecue Central. Let's go! Do it live. Do it live! I can, I'll write it and we'll do it live! So to get that perfect barbecue, you use wood. Are you sure it's safe? Whatever. We put the lighter fluid on, strike your match, and... Should we call the fire department? That might be a good idea. Big Barbecue Central Show. This is a show where we talk about all things that are important to the world of barbecue and grilling, originating from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame city of Cleveland, Ohio, the barbecue capital of the North Coast. I'm your program host, Greg Rippey. Happy to have you. If you want to jump in on the show this evening, please do so by using the two following bits of contact information. You can get in touch with the show by calling 216-220-0966. Email Greg at the BBQCentralShow.com. On the Twitter and Instagram, at BBQ Central Show. Anything else you want to find out about the show can be found at the main website, thebbqcentralshow.com. And here's what's happening in case you can get the newsletter coming up in about 12 minutes from now. It is the first Tuesday of a brand new month, so we know that's going to bring a visit from two regular guests that visit us on the first Tuesday of the month. However... If you follow me on social media, if you are getting some of the newsletters that get sent out around noon or 1 o'clock Eastern, depending on when I actually get it scheduled, you will realize that the month of October is going to be bringing a whole new setup in regards to how we're going to be interviewing the regulars. I thought it was important and unique to this show to be able to have, let's call it a reference piece, where if you're new to the show, you're semi-new to the show, and you've heard of these names that I have on uh, that are the regulars, but you don't know the background, or as I'm terming it, the origin stories of each of these folks, I decided that we would bust out the month of October and take all the regular guests and we would break it all the way back, literally to the beginning. What was it like when you were a kid type stuff? And then building it all the way back into where these guys and gals are present day here in 2020. So we'll be doing that first with the creator of How to Barbecue Right and the pitmaster of Killer Hogs, Malcolm Reed, will be joining me here in about 10 minutes time. And he will take up the first hour, believe it or not. we got a lot to uh, push through when it comes to Malcolm. And then we will move to the second hour, and we will find the other first Tuesday of the month regular guest. He is Sam the Cooking Guy, Sam Zion, and we will also get Sam's origin story. And while I have two of the biggest food YouTube stars on YouTube right here the first Tuesday of the month, 
it's going to be really interesting to see how it all built to here. And it's uh, the other impetus, I guess, for these origin stories is when if you're just searching around barbecue or cooking in general and you get on, I mean, everybody goes to YouTube for anything anymore or for everything anymore. And inevitably, if you're going to be searching some kind of barbecue dish, Malcolm is going to be coming up. Or if you're searching cooking in general, Sam is going to be coming up. And there is a tendency these days to quickly discount all of the work that has happened in the years and literally decades past to say, hey, uh, you know, Malcolm's just lucky hit it at the right time. Sam's just lucky hit it at the right time. Stephen Reichlin, nobody was writing books. Lucky did it at the right. You can go right through the gamut uh, to include myself and say it, it was all it was luck. I don't even know what luck means. I don't think, you know, lucky is hitting the lottery. But that's about it. Uh, everything else to me is hard work and... When you work hard, and by the way, you can work smarter and harder, but when you work hard, there are fruits to your labor. And there are people that refuse to want to work hard or don't like to work hard and then love to be jealous of other people's success. So I want to make sure we're shining a spotlight on my show regulars here, get the backstory. I mean, it's fun to just learn how people have come up and evolved over time, but make sure that we're showing these folks as, and recognizing the hard work that has gone into place. And it's not just luck or something that happened overnight. So Malcolm and Sam on the show this evening, your phone calls and email, should you see fit. Don't forget, you can follow me socially, Twitter, TikTok, Snappy Snap at BBQ Central Show. Also Facebook and Twitch slash BBQ Central Show. And you can find me on YouTube as well, slash RD Rempe. Evidently, from some of the chats, it looks like the YouTube stream is down, although on my vMix, it says it's spitting it out to YouTube. So uh, that might be an upload later, but we won't worry about that. Let me start here this evening because I meant to ask Rashid Phillips this last week and Sylvie the week before, but I was negligent. So I'll make sure that I correct that now. Many of you pointed out to me over the past few weeks that the entire cast of the American Barbecue Showdown wore the exact same outfit for each and every episode. What's up with that? So I emailed Sylvie this afternoon and asked her about this, and here's what she wrote back. Dear Greg, yes, we wore the same outfits for the continuity of each episode. It helped with editing. The producers also thought it would allow viewers to know us better and not have to get acquainted with us each episode. Each of us had multiple outfits in the wardrobe. After each day of shooting, we turned in the dirty clothes. A clean set was distributed for the next day. Sometimes it was necessary to change during an episode due to excessive dirtiness or sweating. A change was available as we needed. We did the interviews usually the next day or uh, we, let me see, I just lost my place. We did the interviews usually the next day or two for continuity. A clean outfit was also worn during those interview days. 
wardrobe checked us before shooting began each episode to make sure we had the same accessories, shoes, socks, and hairstyle each and every episode. So if you thought you were the clothes detective on the American Barbecue Showdown and was like, hey, how come these people are wearing the same damn ep- uh, the same damn clothes every single episode? That's gross. Not to worry. They just had 20 different pair of the same outfit or 20 different outfits that are exactly the same. Now, I... As I watch television, I would like to think I'm a fairly keen individual. So while I appreciate keeping the wardrobe continuity as a visual indicator on who I'm watching, you know, maybe into the third or fourth episode, uh, I would get to know the people's faces, the names would stick, and you could drop the wardrobe continuity. But Uh, That's why I'm here doing a show like this, and I'm not involved with television. They would certainly know more about that than me. But that's right. You saw the same exact outfits for eight episodes, and that's why brought to you by Sylvie Curry, third overall finisher in that show, by the way. And if you haven't watched it yet, I've just ruined it for you in a little bit. Also, if you're a fan of podcasts, let me turn you on to the latest running episode of the Digital Hospitality Podcast hosted by Sean Walcheff. Um, This one deals specifically with mental health. And I still think there's a stigma about that. People don't like to talk about if they're depressed or not feeling right or the fact that they can just afford to get counseling or they see a therapist. There's a lot of things going on in the world today. And sometimes it's nice to talk to somebody that is a professional not somebody related to you or a best buddy or you know anything like that, but somebody who is trained in dealing with mental health. And as I listened to this Monday morning yesterday, it was very impactful, very inspiring. So uh, I would suggest that all of you get over to the Digital Hospitality podcast feed, however you find that, and listen to that. I think the guy's name was Daryl Stinson. I apologize if that's not his name. But uh, he had a truly unique story, um, gut-wrenching at points, and then the overarching mental health and mental well-being topic that uh, they were discussing and, and, and why that is important. I mean, it continues to be important. So I, gr- I highly recommend you get over there and listen to that. It's like an hour or less, so real easy listen. All right, Malcolm Reed coming up out of the box when we come back. I'll talk to you quickly about the barbecue guru as we have always believed outdoor cooking can be easy and fun, and it should be. It can be easy and fun if you use the Monolith Barbecue Guru Edition Grill. Why? Great question. The Monolith happens to be the world's first temperature-controlled smoker with a built-in power draft fan. That means smarter control and greater freedom with automatic temperature controllers. Easily choose your cooking time and temperature and let the monolith do the work of a sous chef or a barbecue pit master. With minimal effort, you now have oven-like precision at the grill and you can serve the tastiest, juiciest meals each and every time. If you currently have a Guru controller and you buy a monolith, all you have to do is hook up the controller right to the built-in power draft fan and away you go. You have the option of upgrading that controller technology, if you see fit. Ultra Q, Dyna Q are the two newest controllers. 
So check that out if you want. If you've never seen them before, head on over to the website, bbqguru.com. They fit on kettles and bullets, offset stick burners, ceramic cookers, everything else in between. If you have any questions, give them a call, and they will answer all of your questions. 800-288-GURU. That's 800-288-GURU. And again, the website, bbqguru.com, the barbecue guru, continues to be a breakthrough in barbecue technology. We begin the month of origin stories with Malcolm Reed, who is in the green room and ready to go. Stick around. We'll be right back. You're listening to the number one most downloaded barbecue and grilling podcast anywhere. The Barbecue Central Show. Casting live from the Barbecue Central Show studios in Cleveland, Ohio. You're listening to the Barbecue Central Show. Once again, here's your host, Greg Rempe. All right, welcome back. This portion of the show being brought to you by Butcher Barbecue, makers of award-winning injections, marinades, rubs, seasonings, barbecue sauces, grilling oils. All the Butcher Barbecue products tested on the competition circuit as well as backyards worldwide. Be the pitmaster of your neighborhood and visit butcherbbq.com to stock up now. Always trust your butcher. Just communicated with Dave yesterday and he said he's got some new podcasts getting ready to hit his feed as he is overcoming some health issues. So we wish him a speedy recovery and continued health. Hope you're doing well, Dave. All right, joining me now, and as I had mentioned at the top of the hour, all of my show regulars this month are going to join me in doing their own origin stories, and batting leadoff is none other than the pitmaster of Killer Hogs competition team and the co-creator of How to Barbecue Right, Malcolm Breed, joins us on the show. Hey, Malcolm. What's happening, Greg? I am looking forward to doing the Malcolm Reed origin story. And by the way, might I compliment you on a fabulous looking whole studio and we've linked up. You have your podcast, like real ass microphone and everything. So we're ready to to drop it large. Yeah, I hope it sounds good, man. Uh, this is the first time I've done anything live in the studio. So. Yeah, sounds good. Looks good. So we are uh, off and running. So. Uh, let's go ahead and, and roll it all the way back, Malcolm. Uh, let's talk about when you were a young lad, where you're originally from. Did you do any moving around as a kid? And uh, we'll start from there. Well, I grew up in Memphis my whole life. Uh, my family comes from, well, half of it on my mom's side comes from Arkansas. My dad's side comes from West Tennessee, where uh, they took that North Carolina style whole hog barbecue and had these old, you know, brick smokehouses. And that's what I grew up around. Whenever we went to the country, that was, you know, going up to McNary County. If you've ever heard of that place, it's kind of famous for Sheriff Buford Pusser and a lot of moonshine, but, yeah. <laughs> but that's what they did. Man, they made moonshine and they cooked hogs. And, and I remember as a kid, every time we went, we would go to, you know, one of the barbecue joints up there and, and we would get this hog and you, you get it, uh, 
pulled and extra crunchy and they would just have these whole hogs laid out and you go in there and smell great because they've been cooking them for days and they only did it on weekends I mean, it was only open like friday saturday and maybe a little bit on sunday but that was it when the, when, whenever they were out they were out and you had to wait a whole another week what were you like in elementary school and as you get through like elementary middle school i mean were you a kid that was just into stuff or uh, you know what do you remember oh man i was into all kinds of stuff. My my dad always wanted me to be a musician. So I remember, you know, being real young that, you know, it was always guitar lessons, piano lessons, drum lessons, stuff like that. The, the guitar stuck a little bit. I mean, I still, I still have one in my office here. I, I pick on it, but I'm not a, I'm not a musician, but also grew up in the kitchen. I mean, every one of our family gatherings was, you know, usually around a barbecue of some kind, whether it was 4th of July, Memorial Day, even even I remember it being cold and we would be outside and somebody some of the men would be smoking stuff. I mean they had this old refrigerator they converted into some type of smoker. It was one of those old metal ones with the latch on it, you know. Uh, and so it was it was it was cooking and music and sports and just all the normal stuff kids were into. You said your dad wanted you to be a musician, probably was into music. Is that why your brother's name is Waylon? <laughs> yeah, I think I think he wanted to name me Merle, but <laughs> my mom vetoed him on that. So so he got to pick Waylon. Uh, you had kind of broached this subject already, but you know there is a common thought that people that grow up in the South are also exposed to family cooking, taught secret family recipes and the like. So uh, you had mentioned the barbecue, but just from in general cooking, is that something that you were also exposed to at a young age? Oh, constantly. I mean, both sides of my family were great cooks. I mean, from my grandmother to my mom, my dad, even, you know, he, he, he could cook as good as my mom, a lot of things. And so in the South where we are, everything revolved around the kitchen. You know, that's where, that's where people hung out. When you had, you know, friends, family come over for some reason, it was always around the kitchen. And I kind of grew up with a Pentecostal background. So, you know, they, that was a, a, a big thing in the Pentecostal religion. They don't, you know, they don't have any other vices. So they just like to eat. <laughs> So food was a big part of it and the music too, you know, and so I have some of that, uh, you know, the Pentecostal music background with what I do. So the barbecue that you were exposed to, is it like everybody else was seeing as much as you were or was your family particularly invested in Southern style barbecue that you remember? Um, well, that's the only style we knew, you know, we didn't know it was a such thing as Southern style barbecue. That was just barbecue to us. And, it wasn't until um, getting into high school where we would we would go to the barbecue festivals with with friends or our parents would take us and drop us off and it was like a big carnival and they had a South Haven had a big spring fest which was like a precursor to Memphis in May I didn't know what Memphis in May I mean I, it was a cotton festival back then uh, when I was real young and then it turned into Memphis in May but it was still really really young it wasn't you know competition barbecue was just getting going and I got exposed to it but. To me, it was just a fun time. Everybody was hanging around, and you know they were cooking barbecue. I didn't pay much attention. It wasn't until later in high school, early college, where we got a good dose of it. When you're getting through high school, I mean, that can be a challenging time uh, for kids, depending on what they're into or if they're hanging with the right clique, what have you. But uh, what were your memories of high school, and were you into sports or academics, or what did you have going on from extracurricular activities? Well, I got a car. I had an uncle that gave me a, uh, he sold me a car. It was an old Pontiac 
Grand Prix, like in 1981. Yeah. Sold it to me for like a dollar, but we had to go get it in New Albany, Mississippi. So I remember that trip. I was like, I was like 14 and it had to sit in the driveway for a year before, you know, I got my learner's permit. All I could do was back it up down the driveway by myself. And then my mom and dad would let me drive with them. But I immediately went to work. Uh, as soon as I got old enough to get a job, I went to work because I had to pay for my own insurance and pay for gas to ride my buddies around. <laughs> so, um, when I was 15, I lied at Sonic, Sonic Drive-In and told them I was 16 and got a job there flipping burgers. And I learned everything there was to cook at Sonic. Back then, we made all the onion rings by hand, you know, uh, made the cold slaw. We did, you know, a lot of that stuff was old school diner style, style fast food. And I know it's changed now. They probably don't have a grill like we did back then. But I cut my teeth at Sonic and then... Um, we had some times there, man. That's back when people circled. The, you know, the drive-in was the place to be. The Sonic drive-in was where everybody went on Fridays and Saturdays, and, and I worked there, so I knew everybody. Was it just a job there, or did you start to get a passion or a deeper passion for food because you were elbows deep into it? I did. No, I, I mean, I, I really learned. I loved the kitchen at that point. Now, um, it wasn't just fast food. I mean, I wasn't crazy about cooking that, so... Um, I know I worked at Sonic for a little while. Then I went to work at Pizza Hut. Some of my buddies were working over there, and and I learned how to do pizzas and run the you know the kitchen at Pizza Hut. And that's back when we were really hand tossing them and doing <laughs> doing some cool stuff. And uh, they uh, at our Pizza Hut they had draft beer. I don't, they didn't have it at all of them, but back then they had draft beer. Well, mm-hmm. being sixteen, <laughs> seventeen years old, we we kind of changed Pizza Hut's policy on draft beer. I think we may have had a few too many <laughs> there while we were working or after hours, but. We had some good times. We would uh, one a good. This is a quick story. When Pizza Hut would close, we would invite all our friends over, and we'd take all the tables and block the doors, and we'd have fight night. It was just like <laughs> WWE wrestling right inside Pizza Hut. We'd clear out all the tables, and man, the cops would get called sometimes. But we had a blast up wow. there. Do you guys have like a belt and see who was champion of the week that kept getting passed along, or it was just slobber knockers all around? It was it was just free for all Royal Rumble style. Wow, we, I would love to see that. Uh, all right, so high school ends, and uh, you're off to college. Where do you go to school, and uh, what do you study, and what do you remember about college? Well, I went into uh, pharmacy, actually, and I went to Northwest uh, Community College, a junior college down in Senatobia, Mississippi, first for my um, first two years. And we that was my first experience being away from home. I wasn't far from home. It was like 45-minute drive, but we actually lived on campus, and had a big time. I mean, I learned a lot of stuff in college. I recommend everybody go away from home a little bit at first to, to you know, get a taste of what it's like to have to take care of yourself, have to cook for yourself. I remember grilling and, you know, doing a whole lot of stuff for the guys back then and hanging out and field parties and stuff like that. But then I went to Ole Miss and it was a whole different ball game. Um, after that, I decided I wasn't going to cut it in pharmacy school. I got into pharmacy school and I said, that, you know what, this isn't for me. You got you to apply yourself a little too much. And I was still trying to work at the time, so it was a that didn't work. It's you know college is weird. I don't want to uh, diverge too much, but I think there is uh, uh, maybe an inaccurate pressure that I know. Uh, so it would be like our, our parents' generation, um, you know, really, and I think to a large part, you know, for our generation people our age you know there was a need to have a college degree in order to get a a decent job you know whatever that means anymore but i think that's kind of fallen by the wayside obviously you know trades have suffered 
tremendously. Nobody's getting into trades anymore. Nobody wants to do that kind of work anymore. But when you're 18, uh, you know, what do you really know what you want to do for the rest of your life? I mean, it's uh, it's insane to think that kids feel the pressure to have to go off to school for four years because they have to and then try and make that right decision at such a young age being exposed to nothing to pick a career that they think they want to spend the rest of their lives at. Uh, I mean, I would love to see a, a, a thought adjustment as far as that's concerned, but, I mean, what do you think about college present day? Well, <laughs> I wouldn't trade my college days for anything. Oh, man. I get I, it. I, I'm there. I'm totally yeah. there with you, no doubt. <laughs> but, yeah, as far as, as you knowing where you're going to go and what road you're going to de- go down, man, um, I'm proof. I never would have thought I'd have been in barbecue. I've always said that I think people, you know, I think it would be better if some, if when you got out of high school, you had to go work a couple of years, get a dose of paying bills, get a dose of real life, and then get to go to college because you would appreciate that education after that, yeah. that, that you could better yourself. Because, uh, you know, I see it all the time and I've, I'm, I'm, a vi- I'm not a victim of it. I did it all to myself, but I had too good of a time in college, you know, and I still have a great time. I don't, I don't think I would change anything. No doubt. Uh, all right, so we're out of college. Uh, do you have a job right away? Do you move back home? What are you doing? You know, post college well, quickly. I pretty much worked the whole time. I mean, I was, you know, when I got out of high school, I got a job at Walgreens. We're being a, uh, worked my way up to a pharmacy tech there, and was still working. And then the casinos had opened up in Mississippi, so I went and got me. It was paying better after I decided I wasn't going to go to you know change my major, and so I I, I went into architecture. Got me a job at the casinos and then just kept, I mean, I, I, I went to school for like eight years, Greg. I, had, I, I was one of the, I was like Van Wilder. <laughs> I kept, and I worked at the casinos too and had a blast doing that. I mean, it was, I've, I've had a, you know, a, a fun time all the way up till I was, I guess, 28, 30 when I decided it was time to settle down. Through this, but I was cooking all that time too. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say like through this time, uh, where is your culinary development well, uh, that was the last restaurant that I ever worked in. Um, you know, when I was in, when I was in, um, for, I guess freshman in college before I went to work at Walgreens. Um, after that, it was I got into competition barbecue. Um, I had a buddy that had his dad actually had the Killer Hogs team first, and he had been, they'd been doing it for years. It was a bunch of hunting buddies, and they got old enough and decided they wanted to retire. They asked uh, the young guys, me and my buddy and Waylon and. You know, it was a bunch of us, and we so we said, "Yeah, we'll take it over." But it was just like a big fraternity party to us when we had barbecues. We didn't care if we won or lost, and we didn't really get into the cooking until we messed up and got a couple calls. And then me and Wayland kind of said, "Hey, wait a minute, you know, there's something to this. We could win some money doing it." And so we decided to spend a million dollars chasing this barbecue thing. It turns out you didn't make any money. You didn't win a lot of money, but it sure was a lot of fun. How old are you guys when that gets exposed to you? Um, I would say we were probably early, early twenties, early twenties. Yeah. Real early. No doubt. Um, when do you meet Rochelle? Regale us with a love story. Yeah. So I didn't meet, I was already doing competition barbecue when I met her and I, and I had some friends, um, we were hanging out and spring fest was coming up and they, and Rochelle, she would move to Memphis area. Well, because she went to Mississippi State, and that was one of my friends that moved back, and they, we needed a grill for a spring fest one year because we were going to have this big party. We needed something bigger to cook a bunch of food on, and Rochelle was hanging out. She said, well, my dad's got a grill. I'm sure he would let y'all borrow it. It's down in Jackson, Mississippi. We'll have to go get it or get him to bring it, and I was like, 
that's that's the girl for me right there. She's willing to ask her daddy if I can borrow his his big grill, <laughs> and and the rest is kind of that was. I mean, the re- it was like I don't know. We were destined to be together. So I mean, would you say like love at first sight for you? Oh yeah, definitely. Okay. What about her? Uh, I don't know. She probably thought I was a little. I don't know. Too wild. I don't know. I, I was smitten. I doubt she was. It took her. It took me a lot of convincing. I, I think we dated for about six years, <laughs> off and on. That was what I always told her. When, when I finally did, uh, I told her we started talking about getting married. And I said, "Well, I'll propose to you if we could make it twelve months without breaking up." And then when I proposed to her, I said, "We got to make it twelve months before we're going to get married. I got to make sure this thing's going to last." <laughs> Just like you were waiting. <laughs> you were waiting for some the other shoe to drop or something. Oh yeah, yeah, but she couldn't beat me off. She'd always try to run me off. I'd come back, you know, like a lost dog, I guess. Uh, I mean, your cooking skills at this point have become fairly refined. Was she somebody that was into cooking as well? Did you have that in common too? She had. She came from that same kind of Southern family background where you know everybody, the grandmothers on both sides cooked, and they had these. Her her granddad uh, threw these huge. uh, um, I guess you'd call them communal Fourth of July parties. And they weren't really parties. There was no politics involved. It was, you know, different church groups and things like that. But their families was huge anyway. But it would end up everybody from the county would come to her granddad's place to cook hogs and sheep and goat, and all, fry catfish. They did all this stuff. So it was it was a big deal. It still amazes me when I go down there at all the food they have. When do you guys decide that you want to start a family? Um, well, the... <laughs> We were going to take it easy, so we got married, and then we went on our honeymoon to Jamaica, and we come back, and it was that was like in November, and then it's like January, New Year. She's like, I'm not feeling well. I think I'm pregnant. I'm like, there's no way. You know, it takes forever. All of our other friends said it takes a long time, you know, <laughs> and so nine months later, Michael's born in September, so it was like, wow. We didn't get to do that whole newlywed thing. I think I, that year, I cooked, man, like a dozen barbecue contests while she was expecting. And I remember her coming out there to most of them until it got to the very end or she couldn't help out. But that was when we were first kind of getting some traction going and people were recognizing this. And so it was, it was, it was tough, man. It was a challenge back then. Yeah. I mean, what's it like going from just having it be you two and you think maybe you got it two, three, four years, you know, whatever the, the plan was before kids made sense. I mean, kids never make sense. But, you know, all of a sudden it's dropped on you uh, quite a bit sooner than you had anticipated. How does that change your life? And, you know, like what was great about it and what was the biggest adjustment for you about it? Oh, I mean, now don't get me wrong. It's great having, you know, being a father, being a husband, having a family. I mean, we only have Michael. He's the only one. But uh, I remember when when they handed him to us, when we got in the car leaving the hospital, you know, we have to, they, they, the, the nurse comes out, puts him in the car seat, checks your car seat. I get in the drive, Rochelle's still loopy. She's been in the hospital two or three days. And I look at her and like, what do we do now? We didn't know. It was like, <laughs> their moms weren't there. Nobody They're was there. coming with they us? Gave, they gave us this baby. Now we got to go take care of it. Here, you know, here we, oh, man. So, you know, life sets in. I think you figure it out. Um, I'm glad that I didn't do that when I was younger, 18, 19. I can't imagine what it I mean. And there's so many people that go through that. They have kids young. You know, we were both, uh, I think I was right at 30 and she was 27, something like that. I, the math slips, but we were grown. And so it was time. It was a, God knew what he was doing when he, you know, when we, when he brought us together, when we got married and then when we had our son, cause it really, you know, changed our lives for the better. What are the things that make you proudest 
of being Michael's father? Oh man, being able to pass down some of the stuff that my dad and you know my, my granddad's have passed down to me. That's the, you know, someone I could sit back and see some of those life lessons and appreciate uh, what was done for me, you know, what, what someone that was older or someone that cared about me told me. And that's the little stuff that I think uh, means a lot. People don't, you don't realize how much it means to you until you can step back and look at it. We'll get to the YouTube stuff here in a second, but uh, there's obviously uh, another side of the business for the How to Barbecue Right brand, which is, of course, the Killer Hogs rubs and you know sauce all that good stuff so when does does that start first or does youtube start first um no youtube i guess the rubs kind of started first because we got to making those um being an mbn we always had judges that we would sit down in front of us and we had to tell them our process so we would try to make these really good rubs and seasonings and that'd be part of our story to try to win us some barbecue contests and so we got to where we were making, you know, barbecue rub, barbecue rub, taking it to contest with us, fresh batch every week. And people started wanting some of it, you know, buddies and stuff. They'd say, make me a pound or two here or there. And so um, I decided that, you know, if I'm doing that, I'm selling a little bit of it. I might as well, you know, try it. And then I I was working for an architect firm. And I got laid off then. It was back during when the recession hit, the first one. I yeah. guess it was. 2008. Eight, yeah, 08. And so I started, I, I couldn't afford to get it bottled at the time. But, and so I was mixing up, you know, I would call them, I don't know, craft batches, I guess, <laughs> on my kitchen table. And I bought me some bottles, and I'd bottle them, and I bought me a heat gun, I'd heat seal them, and I would sell them to people. And it was totally bootleg. Don't do that. I don't tell anybody to do that. Do not do that. It's, that it's, West I'm Tennessee sure background. Some <laughs> kind of way, yeah. But, you know, I did it, and enough people started buying it. And this was back, I guess I did have a newsletter. Rochelle had the idea to start us a website when she first came on. She was into that, and then. She wanted me to do this newsletter, writing recipes or what I was doing. So I started that and I'm no English major at all. I did horrible in English. I hated writing, but she got me to writing these recipes and writing about what I was doing in my own voice. And so people started gravitating towards that and subscribing to the newsletter and buying a bottle of rub or two. I mean, I had you know, one rub it was the only product I had forever. I mean, it was, it went a long time. I would, I would make up multiple skews of it. I would have a one pack, a three pack, a six pack, you know, a three pound bag. It was all the same stuff, but it looked like I had a lot of products, but I really only had one. And so we just started from the ground and then I added a sauce eventually. And then I've added some other AP, I think was the next one. And finally got to where I could work with a co-packer. And that was, you know, that changed my whole game as it gave me more scale. And we've, we've just went from there. We've been working hard and grinding. Ever you know, ever since we first started, it's all we we didn't have a choice. Well, I think the newsletter was, and I might have had you on the show previous to that, but I remember the newsletter being a real bridge to getting our relationship going. And you know, it always seemed timely where that how to barbecue right newsletter would come out, and you were talking about you know how to cook the pork chop the right way, or. Uh, you know, here's what I think about cooking ribs and, you know, I would have you on and, and we would go over that a little bit more in depth, but that's kind of really where our, you know, relationship started. And that now, I mean, we're talking, you know, 10 plus years ago at, at this point, I would assume. You know, I can't, I, I know it's been longer than 10 years. It's been a long <laughs> time, Greg. I remember yeah. I was doing it out of a bedroom in my old house. I remember being on the show and one night I put a banner up behind me just to try to get the, the rub some publicity on your show. That's a, <laughs> That's how that's how that's how hard up I was. 
<laughs> yeah, it's it's been a long time, and uh, it's been a great relationship. So, uh, Malcolm, I'm going to put you on hold here just for one second, and uh, when we come back, then we'll get into the YouTube stuff here and, and catch us up the present day. We're talking with Malcolm Reed from How to Barbecue Right and the pitmaster of Killer Hogs. By the way, if you haven't tried his rubs, buy them. They are really good. You'll thank me later, and you can thank Malcolm, too, since he made them. I'll talk to you quickly about Big Papa Smokers, the number one online shop for all things barbecue, a curated selection of only the best outdoor cooking and grilling supplies and it helps you get you on the path to better barbecue results in no time. Everything at Big Papa Smokers has been Pitmaster approved by Sterling Big Papa Ball himself. If you're into rubs and you're looking for rubs, why not try some of theirs as well? They have 13 perfectly balanced flavors for you to choose from. Sweet Money, Cattle Prod, Cash Cow, Double Secret Steak Rub, Desert Gold, Little Louis Season Salt, one of my favorites. But try them all. Make you the king of the backyard. Also impresses judges on the competition scene. If you're looking for a new go-to sauce, you can try Granny's Barbecue Sauce. Big Papa's owns that brand as well. Great all by itself. Also good as a base sauce if you'd like to use it and tweak from there. Certainly up to you. And aside from the premium selection of rubs and sauces, also offering the very best pellet charcoal and wood cookers available today. If you're looking for a versatile smoker that's easy to use, check out the brand new Mac 2 Star General Pellet Cooker. Big Papa's the exclusive Mac dealer, even offering special packages. If you're not a fan of pellet cookers, no problem. Try that Old Hickory Ace BP. The only charcoal cooker that Big Papa trusts on his competition trailer. If you're not sure of what kind of grill you need, really can't go wrong with anything on the website. Give them a call with questions, 877-828-0727. That's 877-828-0727. Or shop their website, bigpapasmokers.com. That's B-I-G-P-O-P-P-A smokers.com. And we're back with more Malcolm Reed right after this. Stick around. We'll be right back. You're listening to the number one most downloaded barbecue and grilling podcast anywhere. The Barbecue Central Show. Howard Stern, Jim Rome, Dan Patrick, and Greg Rampey. The Mountain Rushmore of talk show entertainment. Now, let's get back to the Barbecue Central Show. Hey, this portion being brought to you by CookinPellets.com, your number one source for quality wood pellets for all your pellet-driven cookers. Visit CookinPellets, C-O-O-K-I-N, CookinPellets.com for more information or to purchase. They also have other products aside from pellets, but get the pellets. They're really good. You can also buy on Amazon.com if you choose. And we're back with Malcolm Reed here. Thanks for hanging with me through the break there, Mal. Um, yes, sir. Let's get into the uh, YouTube side of things. We've uh, covered it from the beginning to where we're at here. When did you first become aware of YouTube just in general, not as something that you know maybe you would want to get on or start building a barbecue empire with, but when did YouTube just get on your radar in general? Well, I didn't know a whole lot about YouTube uh, until 10 years ago. That was when we started. Um, we found it because it was an easier way to share, share large files. Um, we had, we had picked up a sponsor that wanted us to do some video stuff because they, you know, they, they had uh, given us one of these little, um, 
handheld cameras. I think it was called a flip cam or yeah, something flip like that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And they wanted us to take it to contest and record what it was like. You know, they wanted to see what it was like to hang out with the killer hogs. And so, you know, Rochelle would take the camera and get a bunch of footage and it would be, you know, we might be giving some instruction on how we're prepping something for the contest. It might just be some of us partying, having a good time or whatever, just atmosphere. And then we didn't have a way to send it to them unless we physically mailed that camera back. It didn't have a card. You could pull it out. Back then, the internet was so slow, you couldn't mail these files. You know, the internet took a week to Yahoo, upload. Oh my yeah, God. Yahoo server, the, the mail server wouldn't even hold them. It'd kick it out, you know, AOL or whatever. We, we couldn't do it. So YouTube had come along, and Shell was doing some marketing work, and they were using YouTube video, early stage YouTube. And she said, we can make a channel on YouTube and share it, and then just embeds a link, and then we can send it to the people, and they can share it with whoever they want to. It wasn't live to everybody. You know, they kind of uh, could pull it and use it how they wanted to. So when we did that, she said, you know, we already had the newsletter going, How to Barbecue Right. Why don't we start the How to Barbecue Right channel and um, start doing some videos on that because we already got the camera. And, you know, so we had to buy an editing program, which we didn't know how. We, I don't even think we had an editing program. She would just take the file, pull it off on the computer, and then load it straight to YouTube. So there wasn't no edit. It was just raw footage. No, you know, no audio. The audio was crap. The quality was crap. It was give you. It would make you sick if you watch some of it. But then we kind of learned as we went, you know, and we got better. And we did get an editing program and got some better cameras. And you know, and the rest is kind of history. <laughs> Many people want to quickly discount the success of YouTubers and say it's just lucky and an overnight success, as I talked about in the beginning of the show. You know, you started back, you know, probably ten years ago, as you had mentioned. So we can discount the overnight successes bullshit immediately. Um, when do you think year-wise that you knew this was something that was worthwhile for you and Rochelle to continue to do and that people were liking it and perhaps more importantly subscribing it and watching it? You know, I don't know because they're, they're doing those first years. I caught a lot of flight. People, you know, people would make fun of me for doing videos and nobody was watching them and you know, they wanted to know why I was giving out secrets and then, cause nobody was doing that. You know, there wasn't, there wasn't anything like that back then. And so, um, I stuck with it, but I wanted to quit a lot. And Rochelle would say, no, just keep going. You know, don't worry about what they're saying. Just make another video. And we didn't make videos every week back then. We would make usually one or two a month and then we would do newsletters every week. And so I wanted to do just the newsletter and Rochelle's like, no, we need the video. The video is going to be where it's at. The video is the video. And so I would stick it out. Some of them you could probably tell I wasn't into it or, I mean, it just wasn't the same. And then I guess along the way, it took us four or five years to ever get close to over 50,000. I mean, that's a long time in, in today's YouTube time. People, yep. you know, if people don't get to a hundred in a couple of months, they get, they get upset. <laughs> but, um, I mean, it really, it's a, it's a hurry up. It's a hurry up and, you know, what can I, what can you do for me now type thing? Now. But back then, I mean, it was like, it was clawing for every subscriber. So when you were talking about wanting to quit, was it because people were busting your balls or did you just not feel comfortable in front of the camera and like being the guy that's saying, Hey, do it this way. Or, or this is the way I should do it. You should try it too. Well, all of the above. And it took so much time that you didn't see a lot of return on that value immediately. So that's the whole <laughs> thing with YouTube. You don't make a whole lot of money doing YouTube. I mean, once you get up to a certain stage, you got the chance to make money. But at first, it's nothing. You know, you know, it's 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 nickels. I mean, it really, it really is. 
So, I, I mean, and I remember we finally, I guess we, we finally got like a thousand dollar check and I was like, well, you know, this is okay. If you get a thousand dollars a month to do it, I can afford to do it because it's worth my time. And then from then on, it's just, it's, we've, we've doubled and tripled down and, you know, and try to do the best we can and improve our quality and keep giving, you know, putting out good stuff. And, and so it, that's, what's grown it so much. I think just the way we've learned and evolved with it. What upgrades do you make over those years? where you finally buy into this is something that we're going to keep doing. What do you upgrade into that makes the most dramatic impacts in your process and products? Well, getting more comfortable in front of the cameras, one, that was something that wasn't easy for me. But I would think the next thing people probably don't realize is the audio quality. Um, when, when you can kind of get a decent audio quality, the video, you know, they can put up with a little bit of a crappy video, but if people can't, they can't hear you or the sound's horrible, they'll click off immediately. So we figured out that you had to get the audio right. And we've had some videos where the audio messes up and, you know, the, the, those videos don't do near as good as we think they should. Mm. But, it, I mean, you wouldn't think it, but because it's a visual video uh, site that the audio would mean so much, but you coming from broadcasting, you know, you know how much the sound is. The sound is what gets people. Yeah. Have you ever consulted with anyone behind the scenes to work on production equipment or hitting the right video length times to keep viewers' attention spans or uh, working any kind of uh, the uh, algorithm of the day that YouTube has in order to, to get likes and subscriptions and all that? No, no, we've never consulted with anyone. We've, we've always had it to where we were going to kind of do things our way. Um, I mean, I guess Rochelle since she's been to a ton of those conferences and talk conferences on, you know, digital marketing and all the stuff that goes into it, not specifically YouTube, but a lot of that SEO type stuff. And a lot of that applies to these videos that we're doing too, but we've never subscribed to, you've got to do it a certain way because people get stuck in that. They've got to hit all these marks that somebody else is telling them to do. And you're not being yourself when you do it. I, mine, I think well, one, one big thing about our success with it is that it's genuine. I mean, this is the only way I know how to do it. And so it comes off like that when, you know, when Shell recaptures it. Um, I don't know what it would be like if somebody else was recording it or editing it or changing the sound or whatever, because it, you know, I just don't know if, if that magic would be there. But as long as she kind of knows where to be and what to get and how to cut it and how to make me look way better than I am on a video. <laughs> uh, so is this your full-time job right now between the rubs and the, the products of Killer Hogs and, and YouTube? Yeah, we have, it's mine and Rochelle's both full-time job. And we have, I guess, five employees working for us now, helping run the business. So we're, we're trying to get ourselves away from the daily administration of things so we can do more creative stuff because I think that's what we do better. But there's so much goes into you know running the business that makes it challenging. So the income that you guys are generating now is between barbecue products and YouTube, basically? Yeah. Uh, yeah, pretty much, I would say. And, you know, that's that's the, the big chunk of it. All right, so I get a lot of shit for asking this style of question. So let me preface this by saying that you have no obligation to answer with any type of specificity or you can get as detailed as you want. Uh, certainly fine with me. What kind of money are you bringing in just through a YouTube stream? In other words, I think there's a belief that if you have a million YouTube subscribers or 2 million YouTube subscribers or 10 million, you are well into the six figures, maybe broaching into the seven figures. How to barbecue right is well into the million subscriber mark. 
But are you more realistically four figures or five figures or six figures? Um, I would say more. It's six. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if they're going to kick me off. I don't. I don't know how much I could disclose. You know how it goes. I don't know. No, we do well on YouTube. It's. I mean, you know, it's it's a good it's a good salary just on what we're doing on videos for two people. Is there ever a point because? You know, this is the, the question that I get asked a lot is, well, do you do anything else during the day? And I always say, hey, you know, my job is selling class eight Peterbilt trucks. The show is something that I'm very passionate about and I've loved doing it for the last 12 years. But I think if this became my full time job, it would feel a lot different to me. So long way to go to say if you are reliant on producing videos to ultimately bring in a, a large portion of that income for you guys to live on does it ever feel like a grind to you or more of a pressure to produce quality content than if you had also you know stayed at uh, you know doing engineering or, or drafting or, or whatever else um, is there a unique pressure on you to make sure that you're pumping out the best products or uh, videos for people to watch in order for you to get that return so you can continue to live? Well, yeah, I think so. I mean, that's that's what's paying our bills. So we have to, you know, we have to hit that grind and we have to do, make the best content we can. We can't just float something out. Um, one, it's a direct reflection on me and what I've done. So, I, you know, I've, I, I want to always put out good stuff. I mean, they're not always home runs and I do just a lot of enjoy cooking and sharing. I've always said that if just one person watched it, I would keep doing it um, as long as I could afford it. I mean, that was, that would be the whole thing. Yep. But yeah, I mean that when I, I mean, I went through two with my, in my career, I went through two layoffs when I was in you know the architect field. Um, one when I first got out of school and then the next one a few years later when the commercial construction here in Memphis took a dip and it did everywhere. And that second layoff is when I told Rochelle, I'm not, I'm not going back to that corporate world. We're going to make it at this or we're not, you know? And, and she had that mentality too, that, well, we buckled down, we can work harder for two years of our life so we can live the rest of our life like nobody else. And that's been over 10 years ago. She still got me working that hard every day. So those two years was a lie. And she should have said 20 years. <laughs> yeah, she was training you to, to get the right mindset. Uh, could you wake up any differently, though, at this point? Because there is, uh, and I'm not, I don't, pre this word pressure isn't a bad thing, right? I mean, I wake up every morning and, you know, the fire's there to go out and continue to make cold calls, continue to work on the show, you know, kind of the burn it at both ends, if you will. Uh, could you, could you wake up different? Could you wake up? Uh, next week and your foot isn't as much on the gas uh, or you realize that this is something that you have to do in, in order to meet your own demand from yourself? Well, it's easy to get burnout. So we, we like to take, uh, we have to schedule ourselves times once a month where we're just going to decompress and, and go do something we want to do, which has been tough this year because we haven't got to do that much. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know. It, it gets to be second nature. When you're used to working 24 hours a day, we never turn it off. It's our business. So even like, you know, before we're going to bed, we're still checking emails, answering customer service questions, 
you wake up to the same thing and then you have to, you have to have a schedule. And I mean, our, our schedule is tight. I mean, we, between meetings and phone calls and trying to schedule when we're going to film something and set how we're going to prep for our podcast, all this stuff, man, it's a, I mean, it's, it's more than probably an 80 hour week. Of what we do. Oh, I bet it's, it's crazy. So yeah, I mean, it's easy to wake up, you know, to sit back and say, man, we just don't want to do it no more. But she's good about, being on her good side when I'm down and I'm the other, I'm the opposite way. When she's down, I'm the one let's go. We can do this. I got these ideas. And so we kind of, you know, if it wasn't for her, um, I don't know. Our relationship is just something that's special. Most people don't get along with their wives as well as I get along with mine. <laughs> and I mean, we, you know, we do everything together. So where do you see the channel and the barbecue products? you know, three, four or five years from, I mean, can you look that far into the future? I mean, that used to be like the standard bullshit interview question that you get at a job, yeah. which I hated, but I mean, where do you see some kind of a, of a long-term future for this whole situation you have going? Well, I don't know about the products. Um, I, I don't think barbecue is going anywhere. I think it's hotter now and, you know, yeah. bigger now than it ever has been. And for it's sure. only going up. Um, as far as what we're doing, we're, we're uh, branching out and wanting to create more content on different channels and um, start. We've got all kinds of ideas of things we're trying to get going. Um, you know, like our podcast, we, you know, we're trying to build it up. Um, we're going to be doing some kind of content some way. I don't like to be stuck on one platform. That's our thing. We, you know, I realize we both realize that YouTube has been here. We've been with it for 10 years. Who knows how long it's going to be there, but there's always going to be something else it's bigger and better. So we've got to be flexible and we got to stay ahead, pay attention to what's going on and, and just keep, you know, keep keeping on. Do you think that there's some kind of an option at some point where you could take everything that you've done for YouTube and just capture it on the hard barbecue, right? Uh, how to barbecue, right? Website. You post videos there. I mean, it certainly there's a whole like paywall thing you might have to set up or a subscription thing. But getting it off of somebody else's stuff and putting it on your landscape of the internet. Um, the deal with that, the traffic would be crazy. It would. I've checked into it. It would cost me so much money for yeah. the traffic and the size of it to do it. It works with YouTube because they've got these big servers. But um, it's unbelievable how much content that we have that we could, you know, because a lot of it we do put on there now. How barbecue arts a pretty big website. We get several million, you know views a, a month on it alone not just youtube so the traffic's crazy on it and if we tried to host everything on there and just funnel everything to it i mean it would it would it cost a lot of money it could be done it just cost a lot of money i think from what i've been told yeah oh there's no doubt about it i mean uh, and plus the video content i mean it's not just audio which is much smaller the video is going to be way bigger file size it's all done in high definition so i can only imagine the cost and the bandwidth that uh, some kind of a server host would charge you for that so uh malcolm reed is the pit master of killer hogs and the co-creator of how to barbecue right and from start to where we are right here in 2020 he has gutted through it and answered all the questions malcolm hopefully this was uh, more enjoyable than not for you but i think uh you know as a lead off to the origin stories of this month i couldn't ask for anything better uh you're the best uh, we've been doing this for uh you know a couple of years now where you're coming on the show first Tuesday of every month and I, I couldn't be uh, a more proud to have you on to lead off every month and more thankful that you take the time out uh, to do this with me. It helps lend legitimacy to my show and uh, I've appreciated the relationship over the, the decade plus that we've been doing it. 
Hey, I always enjoy talking with you, Greg, man. It's always fun. So I appreciate you inviting me on every month. It gives me something to do on Tuesdays. Yeah, you got it. And uh, we'll look for you again next month. All right. Have a good one, man. All right. There he is, Malcolm Reed, right there from Killer Hogs, How to Barbecue Right. And, of course, everybody is over there and subscribed and all that fun stuff. So uh, love your feedback. Uh, evidently, we're down on YouTube. I don't know what the deal is with that. There was something new, of course, that I was really trying to try out, but, you know, that ain't going to work. No, no. You can't try that out. Hey, since 1983, Pits and Spits has been handcrafting smokers and grills in Houston. Within that time, they've established themselves as one of the premier brands in high-quality offset. And more recently, pellet cookers, pits and spits, set itself apart by using heavy 7 and 10 gauge steel in every cooker, fully welded construction that you can feel when you use the unit and a 304 stainless steel roll top lid and front shelf on every single cooker. Why does it matter? Well, how about this? Using higher quality materials gives you a better product. Pits and spit smokers reach and maintain temperatures, allowing you to worry more about the meat than the heat. By providing a fully welded smoker, you don't have to worry about grease or smoke leaking out of the barrel or in your grill rattling apart as you move it through the backyard. And by using 304 stainless, you're getting an heirloom quality product you'll be able to pass down to your kids. Now, where some companies focus on being the low-cost provider, Pits and Spits focuses on craftsmanship and quality materials. Are there cheaper ways to make Pits and Spits? Yes, but they don't like tack welds, cheap stainless, electronics you can't trust. Having in-house manufacturing gives them complete control of their design and standards, not something you find brought in from overseas. Their steel suppliers supply materials that can be used in the harshest environments around, so they will perform wherever you are, and their controllers are made right here in the States. So they're able to have unimpeded transparency into the programming. Bottom line, Pits and Spits has a dealer network across the country. But if there isn't one close to you, you can call them at the shop, 844-650-6250. That's 844-650-6250. Whether you're a backyard grill master looking to cook steaks for the fam or a competition team looking to cook 50 racks of ribs, Pits and Spits is a product for you. You can check them out online, pitsandspits.com, all spelled out, or see their pits in the wild across all social media with their handle, Pits and Spits. All right, let's wrap up the first hour. Stick around. We'll be right back. You're listening to the number one most downloaded barbecue and grilling podcast anywhere. The Barbecue Central Show. Continuing to produce incredibly mediocre content in an exceptionally professional way. You're listening and watching the Barbecue Central Show. Once again, here's your host, Greg Rampey. Hey, this portion brought to you by Fireboard and Fireboard 2 and Fireboard 2 Drive. Six different temperatures simultaneously, connecting Wi-Fi or Bluetooth. Smart speaker compatible. Find out more by visiting fireboard.com or call 816-945-2232. Yes. Who's got Fireboard 2? Who loves Fireboard 2? Most of you, of course. 
Tom Phillips, love my pits and spits Maverick 2000. Wonderful. Thank you, Tom. Doug Scheiding, that was a great interview. And very cool to learn more about Malcolm. Agreed, Doug. That was great. All right, we're going to load in for the second hour. Sam the Cooking Guy is coming in, and we will learn all about him from birth to 2020. Stick around. We'll be right back.